Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. We are continuing our worship journey through our May series on I Love to Tell the Story. And we began with how to tell the Jesus story, the gospel, how to tell the story of the Bible. And now today we're going to talk about how do you tell the story of the church? And the first question you might have is, well, what do you mean by the church? Am I talking about the building? Am I talking about the people known as Crozet United Methodist Church? Am I talking about our affiliation as the Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church? Am I talking about that global denomination called the United Methodist Church? Or am I talking about what the creeds say, the church universal, which is all of Christianity regardless of affiliation and denomination? The answer is yes. I'm talking about all of that because all of that is our story. It is our narrative. It is the experience that the world has had and that we as Christians have had in the world. And so all of those things are a part of the story that we tell. Some of us focus on what is most close at hand. Maybe it is a story of this church, a story of a people who were not at first in Crozet. They were first in Beaver Creek, and then because of an opportunity that they foresaw, they moved here and became Crozet Methodist Church, only to change that in 1968 when the United Methodist Church came into existence with the joining of the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren to get United Methodist. Now, that's a simple way of kind of telling the linear story of the church, but it doesn't tell the passion of the people. It doesn't tell about a people who were willing to step out in faith and go someplace that they had not been previously and build a sanctuary believing that God would help to fill it. And God did. God moved not only in their words and their actions and their invitations to the community, but God moved in the hearts of those that heard and received that so that they could come there. And when they were bursting at the seams, they built this space. So even the building contains within it a story of an experiential people. But as Christians, we are aware that the story is told by many different people in many different ways. And sometimes we don't like the narrative that some people are telling. There are certainly a lot of very vocal people within the church universal. And sometimes they seem to think that they can speak for all of us. That's why it is so essential for us to learn to speak the narrative of the church. What is our story? What is the church? And it's not an easy story to tell. Some of us have a very situated, culturally situated understanding of who the church is. For instance, if you have grown up in Methodism in the South, it looks very different from Methodism in the North or Methodism maybe even in the Midwest and the far Pacific coast. Methodism has its very own unique flavor in Texas, I can tell you that. There are all kinds of spins on just Methodism because there are spins on everything in life about culture, right? Nobody would declare that in the United States we all eat the same thing. Everybody has their way of eating barbecue. Do not get in an argument about barbecue with people from Memphis, people from Texas, 
North Carolina, South Carolina likes that mustard thing they do. Everybody's got a thing. Do you chop it or do you pull it? And then if you really want to get feisty, start to talk to somebody from Kansas City and they'll tell you it's not even pork. <laughs> Very different. Christianity is no different. Every local congregation, every mini family of faith within the larger umbrella has its own take on Christianity, how they live that out, our particular flavor. This congregation has a passion and a call to radical hospitality, a commitment that anyone who wants to be here is welcomed and blessed to be here, that we want to serve, we want to welcome and invite. And so you are welcome here. This is your church as much as it is ours. And that's a beautiful thing, to know that you can come and be welcome, because unfortunately that is not the case in all of Christianity. There are places where certain people are not welcome, but yet God proclaims throughout the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, as well as the scriptures, that you are mine. All of you have a place in my heart and in my house, and if you choose to be here with me, I always welcome you. And so those of us who choose to be here welcome in that same spirit, that same divine invitation. But we live in a world now where it, you take it for granted that you could go to church. There are a lot of options. It was a lot easier with blue laws. If you didn't go to church, everybody knew where you were. You were at home because there was nowhere else to go. And now there are a plethora of things that you could be doing or not doing. There are a million different places that you could go, both physically and through the gift of technology. And so what you choose to do is also part of that story. What do we, as the body of Christ, choose to do with our time, our resources, our words, our efforts, our gifts? What are we choosing to do? For that tells the story. And one of the things that we are wrestling with probably as a global existence, not just a global denomination in Methodism, but as a global existence of Christianity across the ages is, what do we want to be? You've heard the story that people tell outside the walls of the church. You've heard the negative public relations that a lot of Christianity has. We have been assailed by all kinds of scandals. We have been confronted with times and cultural practices that reflect our unwillingness to be hospitable. We have been confronted with times when we have been hypocrites. There are people who will say about the church, you know, they are hypocrites because they preach, teach, and say one thing, and then they do another. They talk about sin, but they're sinners. Newsflash, yes, we are. We are here because we recognize that we are sinners. The story continues that we recognize that we don't have to stay sinners. And that's the liberation that we are trying to convey. Are we conveying that message that we're all sinners? If you've ever heard the phrase that the church is not a museum for saints, it is a hospital for sinners, then you're starting to get on the right track. That this is a place where people who are imperfect come. This is a place where people who yearn to be forgiven and to forgive gather together to receive that grace, to share that grace, and then be equipped to go out and share it with others. This is not a place where we come to talk about how awesome we are. 
This is not a place where we come to say that we have it all together and nobody else does. This is a place where we are confronted every single week by our failure to be an obedient church, our failure to be faithful disciples. And it's not because we don't yearn to do that. It's not because we don't recognize that we have been called and invited to do that. We have been granted mercy, as the author of Peter says. We have been given mercy, so therefore we need to share that mercy. But it's a hard story to tell. All throughout the year, I have preschool chapel in this space, and so the preschoolers come in uh, two times a week, and they sit down here, and they take a good look at your sanctuary. They look in, they want to know what these things are, what's going on here, why did you change that, what's going on. Very observant. And over and over this past year, they've done something that other preschool groups have not done. They've asked me repeatedly about the two windows in the chancel. Now, if you're sitting on this side, you can see the window about baptism. If you're sitting on this side, you can probably see the one about Holy Communion. And if you're in the middle, you might not be able to see either. But the kids up front can see those. And they kept asking about them. What's going on? When are we going to talk about that? Now, I don't generally talk about the sacraments like that with the preschool because, one, I don't assume that everybody in the preschool is Methodist. I actually don't assume that everybody in the preschool comes from a Christian family. So I don't usually get that in-depth with the sacraments with two, three, four, and five-year-olds. But they wanted to talk about it. So finally... I said, okay, the last two chapels, we'll talk about the two windows. We started this past week with baptism because that came first. So we started with that, and I brought out the baptismal font, and I showed them how I pour the water in, and I showed them how with an older child like their age, I would baptize with a shell and give them the shell. And one little girl goes, I want to be baptized today, right now. I was like, no, we're not going to do that today. <laughs> we're not going to do that. I said, I, you'll notice that I haven't made the water holy. I haven't consecrated the water. I would do that when we were in church so that we could do the baptism. And I said, some of you might already be baptized. And then I don't have to baptize you again. Why wouldn't you have to baptize us again? Because God got it right the first time. I don't have to do it again. God got it right. And that is good enough for all of us. One baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Don't have to do it again. And then one little boy turned to his neighbor and was like, have you been baptized? And I was like, whoa, easy, tiger. Some of you have been baptized, and you probably don't remember. I don't remember my baptism. I just know that I was. Uh, and I said, the cool thing about being baptized as a baby when you don't remember is that when you were baptized, God put a piece of God's self in you, a little piece of that Holy Spirit residing with you. I said, so some of you have lived your entire lives almost, all four years, with a piece of God inside of you. And that peace of God will go with you forever. It'll go with you for your entire life, wherever you move, wherever you go, whatever you do, God will be with you. And for others of you, you may at some point choose that you want that too. I said, but if you want to be baptized, that's a conversation you need to have with your parents. And then your parents have a conversation with Pastor Sarah. We don't just do that in chapel. Could you imagine the trouble I would get in if I'm just baptizing kids in chapel? So next week, we're going to talk about communion. And it's one of those things where you're trying to wrestle with how do you explain holy communion to kids? And, you know, and if you step back and you look at it, it looks rather strange, right? Here's a table. I'm going to bring the table down. I'm going to lay out the elements. 
there's a big chalice, right? There's a big old wine glass up here. And then there's a platter that has bread on it. And somehow that's Jesus, right? I'm supposed to convey that somehow we pray over it and then God transforms in some holy, mysterious way what's happening here on the table so that when we take it, we too are transformed in some kind of holy, mysterious way. I know a lot of unknowns that preschoolers just love. And so I'm trying to wrestle with this, but it occurred to me that the answer to my conundrum for next week is in a question that another child asked. Because what happens is, if there's a lull in speaking, they ask questions. So as I was doing something up here, one of the kids goes, Pastor Sarah, why do we have the church? Who planted that kid from the bishop's office? That's a good question. Why do we have the church? And I said, well, you know, the church is a place for people who love Jesus to come and talk about Jesus, to learn about Jesus, to sing about Jesus, to pray to Jesus, and to be with other people who are trying to be more like Jesus. That's what the church is. It's not just a place that we come. It's a people that we are becoming. It is something that is alive and organic. That's why the scriptures refer to the church as the body. The body of Christ existed before there were buildings. In the beginning, the church didn't look like this. In the beginning, the church looked like a bunch of people gathered at somebody's house having a meal. At some point in the midst of the meal, they would celebrate Holy Communion. They would share in the common cup, and they would break bread together. They might sing a couple songs, a couple of psalms, and then they would pray together, and then they would go home. Church dismissed. But over time, that became more cumbersome the more people that wanted to be a part of this family that was forming this chosen people, this priestly people that were becoming the church. And so they started to find designated places for that. And sometimes they were underground and they would have to mark them so that only Christians knew that they were there. And they would mark them with this little symbol that looked like a fish. There were places that they started to congregate and that's when they became congregations. And then somebody at some point said, you know what, we don't have to hide in fear anymore. It's kind of okay to be a Christian now. We can actually build a place for people to come. And this is where things get kind of sticky in the, in the story of Christianity. It gets kind of sticky because a church can be a tremendous blessing. But if you've ever been the trustees, you know that it can be a big burden. You know, a church is only as good as the congregation that is living amongst it. And so the church starts to become this thing that we start to intertangle. Do you remember the old story, right? This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors. There's all the people. You only got 10 people in your church? At this point, it was always kind of anticlimactic when you were like, we need more hands, more people, right? And then how do you build a bigger church when this is it, right? This is all you got. But we were trying to convey to children over the course of our lives that the church included the people. I applaud whoever invented that little game because, yes, the ch there's the people, right? you got to have the people. Does the church continue to be a church when it's no longer filled with people? 
There is a restaurant in Norfolk where I had my last church called Freemason Abbey. And it used to be an Episcopalian church. Now it's a restaurant. And you can go in and you can have phenomenal she-crab soup and you can look at the stained glass windows. Is that still a church? The, the people, the family of faith are no longer there. It has actually become a restaurant. There's a bar, there's a kitchen, they're not serving potlucks. It's a different world. Because the story of the church is the relationship. I received this book from a member of our family, the faith, by the name of Betty Jane Kent. This was her book. And in the middle of this pandemic, she passed away. And even though I got to see her a couple days before she passed away, and I know that she had the assurance of God's love and grace and mercy, when she died, it felt like I had lost something, that we had lost something. Now, granted, if you knew Betty Jane Kent, she was a very lovable person. And she was a fabulous person to see. She always took a lot of thought and care into how she dressed and how she presented herself. And I love that. I also loved that she was excited about how I was dressed. That helped too. But what I miss most about Betty Jane is our relationship. I miss the fact that when I would go visit her on her occasional trip to the hospital, I would sit there and she would just want to hold my hand. I miss seeing her smile and her laughter. I miss the kinds of fun conversations we used to have and the way that she would talk about this people known as Crozet. I miss that. But fortunately, because of the story of the church, I know that I have not seen her for the last time. I know that I will see her again. And when I see her again, she will never, ever be sick with diabetes. She will never have to worry about a heart condition. She will never have to worry about aging. She will never again cry. Because the church's story is one of mercy and salvation, not separation and condemnation. And so it helps us to see that there remains this connection even when it seems that there is emptiness that God still fills the holes in our hearts, the emptiness in the pew. Because the church is bigger than the bricks that build the building. The church says that people are more than the pews in which they sit. That we are a people, but how do we show that? The one thing I really wished as I was looking through this pictorial history is that when they show those two pictures of Crozet United, well, what is now United Methodist Church, when they show those pictures of the old sanctuary, which is now where our preschool is, and this sanctuary right here where we're gathered today, there's no people. You can't see the family in the house. Now, if you've ever had to look at anybody's vacation pictures and all it is is outdoors and buildings, you start to be like, well, what did you do? Like, where did you go? Did you have any pictures of you all while you were there? Any video evidence? Right? Where, where are the people? Because the people are the story. 
The people are the testimony about Christ. It's not just the number of pews that we have or the number of donors that give. It is about the people. And maybe that's when the church started to lose its way a little bit, when it started to wander. Because the author of Peter reminds us, we have a firm foundation, and that is Jesus Christ. We may wander, we may slip, we may go off, but at the end of the day, we come back and are grounded on our cornerstone. And that's what we're trying to share. Now, you think about the fact that you're in traditional worship. You have probably at some point been exposed to the culture of, the wor- of Christianity and traditional worship. Most people don't, you know, go on a website and be like, let's try traditional first. Unless you were raised in this. And I was raised in traditional worship. I was raised that you got dressed up for two things, church and the doctor. You remember those days? Get all gussied up just to go get undressed again. And that wasn't easy. I mean, I can remember saying to my mom, why do we have to get all dressed up? You know, you, you, you start to see, especially around my generation, there kind of became this laxness. My mom always made us wear a skirt or a dress. Do not wear pants to church. Skirt or a dress. She was raised a good Southern Baptist, and you dressed up for the doctor in the church, and you're going to wear a dress. Meanwhile, my friend Drew had convinced his parents that he could wear flip-flops. And I wanted to be like, Mom, you know, the cool kids are wearing flip-flops to church. And my mom's like, do I look like I'm Drew's mom? No, you do not look like you're Drew's mom. But then if I had thought about it, if I had actually been reading my Bible more, I might have responded to my mother, you know, Drew's flip-flops are actually more consistent with what Jesus was wearing than my heels. I would probably not be living to talk to you right now, but I probably would have responded with that. Because it's, it's a shift, right? It's a, it's a change. And there is something beautiful about getting dressed up for church. In fact, a lot of us have had conversations this morning about the beautiful things that you are wearing. Coming in your best for church. And there's something to be said about dressing up and how it makes you feel to put on your best and give your best to God. There is something to be said about that. But not having your best should not be a reason to keep you out either. During the pandemic, especially when we were completely virtual, a lot of people said, you know, you're, you're coming back to in-person worship, but I like being in my pajamas. Some of, some of you hadn't wear, worn pants in like a year. I like having my coffee and eating pancakes and doing church at the same time. It's wonderful. And I get that. And so when somebody was telling me how much it was, you know, I love having my coffee right with me, I was like, bring your coffee. And I could hear all four of my grandparents roll over in their graves. <laughs> you don't bring coffee into the church. If a cup of transformed holy water makes you able to better receive the word of God, bring your coffee, right? Because I believe that you are all very capable, mature people. If you spilled something, I believe that you wouldn't point and go, Bart did it. I believe that you would clean it up or at least ask Bart to help you clean it up. And so I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. That's a shift in culture. I recognize that right there. Big shift in culture. But if somebody who is a server didn't get off work till 2 a.m. and went home and caught a couple hours of sleep 
but was willing to get up and come to church and be present with us, but they needed that cup of coffee, would you grant them that mercy? It's the question, right? Would you grant them that mercy? Sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in somebody else's position. In fact, the service industry, those people that serve us our food, that cook our food, that make our drinks, some of those people are the least represented in church on Sunday mornings because they're exhausted. They've been out, they've been cleaning and prepping, and, and they are just not able to get up. And people in that industry will also ask me a lot, is Sunday your only worship service? What day do you want to do worship? What day do you want? And they're like, sometime around like 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. Okay, I'll work with that one. Because our culture is Sunday, correct? And the Jews that gave us Jesus, their culture was sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Saturday was their Sabbath. And then Jesus did something radical, resurrected on a Sunday. And then that became our worship day. So the change in culture is, is our story. Our story changes. You can see that change happen in liturgical wear. I was trying to explain liturgical wear to 9 o'clock, and I realized that that was probably a losing battle. But liturgical vestments. And they have changed over the course of years as we have changed our understanding of the church. In fact, what I am wearing for you is called an alb. It is generally considered to be the equivalent of liturgical underwear. You usually wear a chasuble over top of it, which kind of looks like a poncho. And the earliest vestments of this were completely bare on the front and totally adorned on the back because the priest spent the entire time faced this way. And you didn't need to see this. You didn't need to see this. But as we started to consider that the connection, the relationship within the church is important, the more they realized that maybe I should turn around. Maybe I should engage you as much as I engage this. And so then you started to see things changed. This broad stole used to be worn under the chasuble. Now it's worn on top as a symbol of my ordination as an elder in the United Methodist Church. If you've seen someone with a diagonal one, that's a deacon. They have a different vestment so that you can see with your eyes the difference in the ordination. But these things too have come to change. They have become a little bit easier to move around in because originally we just stood in one place. But now we move more. And sometimes I have to get down on the floor with the kids. Sometimes I need to get down and pick up a kid to be baptized. Sometimes we have to lean over and do things. And because of that, our culture, even of our vestments, changes. So things change. The story we're trying to tell is not that it used to be so good and we've lost it. The story we're trying to tell is, you are so worth it that we will change. So when I think about my answer to the little boy who asked me, why do we have the church? The more I started to think, you know, we have the church because we're not really good at being Jesus. We're not perfect. And we need a place where we can come and we can try and we can grow and we can become more like Christ and people can help us become more like Christ and above all, the biggest blessing of the church is mercy. Jesus used to spend time teaching and preaching and saying, you have heard it said. You have heard that it was said this, but I tell you this. Perhaps now, if Christ were to come before us and say that, 
Christ would say to us, you have heard it said, let the one without sin cast the first stone, which we usually kind of interweave with, you know, let the one um, focus on the, the log in your own eye rather than the speck of your neighbor's, and we kind of weave those together. But perhaps Jesus would say to us now, let the one who knows sin be the first to give extra chances. Because we live in a world where we have to confront the reality that the church has hurt people. The church has not been perfect. People have been hurt in their minds. They have been hurt with words. They have been hurt in their hearts. They have even been hurt in their spirits. And forgive us, Lord, they have even been hurt in their bodies. So we are a place that has to be about not even second chances, chances. New chances, extra chances, bonus chances. It has to be a place that is about mercy, not sacrifice. It has to be about a place where we want people to know that if you mess up, grace is here. So I am ordained into a denomination that has changed its name multiple times. It has changed its understanding of who it is and what its call in the world is. It has changed its understanding of even its logo a lot of times. But the one constant in the church has been grace. That has been here since before we ever became a people known as Methodists. Grace came before. We call that provenient. Grace came before. And those of us who are a part of the church have, by and large, experienced the two sacraments. We've experienced baptism and communion, and so we understand justifying grace. We understand that moment that we are truly forgiven and cleansed. But do we understand sanctifying grace, that final movement of God's grace, the one that keeps saying, you're going to mess up, but it's okay because I am with you. You are going to slip and fall and stumble, but it's okay because I am for you. You are going to hurt one another. But if you are willing to create space for another chance, I will do the very same for you for all time. As much as I love Betty Jane Kent, she was not perfect, but she was ours. And that is the way God looks at us. We are not perfect, but we belong to Christ. And there are too many people outside of the church that don't realize that they do too. That the words that Peter wrote, the words that have been carried down through the ages is that you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were no people, but now we are God's people. And that, my siblings in faith, is the story of the church. And may you figure out how to tell that story using your words, using your relationships, using your acts of mercy and kindness, using your very presence 
to say to another beloved child of God, if you will forgive me, then let us try again. May that be the new narrative that we put out into the world, a narrative that is built not on perfection, but of mercy. May that speak a larger gospel than one where we have been falsely claimed to be hypocrites. We know who we are. It is time that the world learned. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.